So welcome everyone to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Thank you for joining me today to discuss digital transformation within the NHS. So before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'm going to start us off. So my name's Katia and I work with the NHS team here at Evolution, working specifically with NHS organisations across the West Midlands. Uh, My goal is to help those organisations realise their true potential towards better patient care through digital technology and innovation. So that is me, Penny. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Katia. Nice to be here with everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Penny Gehajoglu. I'm a consultant clinical oncologist by background and the Chief Clinical Information Officer and Deputy CMO at the University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire. Nice to be here with everyone. Perfect. Thanks for that, Penny. Martin, can you go next for me? Yes, I'm Martin Sadler. I'm the IT Director for Sandwell and West Birmingham NHS Trust. I've been in IT for over 20 years and I've been in the NHS for less than four years. Perfect. Brilliant. Jazz, can you go next, please? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Katia. So I'm Jazz Cartwright. I work for Worcestershire Acute Hospitals and I'm currently their Director of Continuous Improvement. Um, I've held the role for about six months now, but prior to that, I've had 20 years in of experience in digital. And innovation. Great. And finally, Asma, please, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Asma Nafif. I'm the Chief Analytics Officer at Arden and Gem CFU. I'm also a non-exec director with Derbyshire Community Healthcare Trust um, and co-chair of um, APNA NHS, which is a South Asian Leaders Network. Um, and I'll give a bit of a plug later on for our inaugural conference in September and hopefully get some of you guys on the call to come and join us. Perfect plug away. Um, So now that we're all introduced, let's move on to the questions relating to the topic, which is digital transformation within the NHS. So as usual, I'll work my way around the panel, asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. So to kick us off, Penny, please could you start with your question? Um, Sure, my pleasure. Uh, My question is, what does digital transformation mean uh, for your organisation? Have you got you any kind? Of, yeah, if you could just expand a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah, Thank sure. you. So um, I thought I should start with that open question because digital transformation is a very broad term. And at the moment, I'm leading the EPR implementation, the electronic patient record in my trust. But EPR is only part of the broader digital transformation. So we need to look at at an organizational change or even at a system change as, as a whole with a whole system approach. And that's where the element of transformation comes along. So for me, is um, is is a vision, um, and it's a vision to create a joined up care and pathways which are clinical, effective, and safe, and they improve the experience of our patients and of our staff. And it's about looking at not just the individual level, but looking at how technology can enable us to improve population health in general, and reducing health inequalities, and enable people to. Um, increase the digital skills and the digital literacy and to be able as a result to leverage the benefit of digital technology which is as we've seen during the pandemic telecare virtual wards remote patient monitoring and that as a result would lead to the sustainability of our nhs in general and different ways of working for staff more pleasurable and more agile 
and the patients being treated closer to home. So there's a lot around um, what the patients in our communities need and how can we use technology smartly, using decision-making tools, using smart triaging um, and building an infrastructure as well to be able to support that digital revolution. So that's in summary what it means um, for me and, and for us as an organisation. Great. Thank you for that, Penny. Um, I'm going to come to you first, Martin, as you are directly below Penny on my screen. So if you could take it away, please. Um, OK, thanks. Good question, Penny. What does digital transformation mean? And especially when you look at what we currently do in the NHS, we, we don't have a national system for anything and we don't have a national system of patient records, which was one of the things that shocked me when I first arrived in the NHS. Because everybody who is exposed to the NHS, which is everyone in England, and just assumes that if they've got a digital record, then everyone can see that digital record. And one of the biggest frustrations is if I if I was um, walking through Worcestershire and fell over and had to go to hospital, they'd have no idea about any of my underlying conditions or any of my medical history. So I think the first thing that digital transformation would mean would be a safer treatment of patients. And that goes all the way through. So once you've got digital prescriptions, you get safer treatment of patients because we're not relying on somebody having good handwriting. Once, once you've got a digital record of when people have been to visit, then you've got a safer understanding of the history of patient care. But the other thing about digital transformation is people who go into caring professions and caring medical professions do it so they can spend time with the patients and apply the things that they've learned. And actually, if you give them really bad tech processes or even really bad digital processes, that takes away from, from time that we've got to share. So for me, it's talking about freeing making the journey safe for patients but freeing up time for the clinicians that's what i think it was that's what we aim to do we measure things in time great thank you for that martin asma can i come to you next i think um i really like penny's question and, and she made a really good point around kind of digital transformation meaning different things to different people i think for me it's about the the people the processes and then the technology so quite often when i listen to people talking about digital transformation they go straight to wizzy technology and don't kind of think of the users of that technology and what's the problem that we're trying to solve. And I think there's, there's something quite big around kind of going backwards. What's the problem that we're trying to solve? How can we innovate? What are the processes that we need to put in place? And then what's the best technology to use to do that? And it's quite a structured framework in my mind. And then your overarching banner across that is transformation and the process of bringing people on board, co-designing your stakeholders, the governance arrangements, and then the actualization of change. You know, we can put in amazing um, software, amazing processes, unless you've brought people on the journey to then adopt those processes and that technology, you, you've kind of done something very shiny that you can tick the box of digital transformation, but you haven't transacted. And I think for my organization, Arden and Gem, as a CFE, we provide a supportive function so within my business intelligence team, it's about kind of the core foundations, the data sets being right, the interoperability of systems and making that available. And that's kind of core. And then I know in other pockets of the organization, for example, our healthcare solutions team, they work around, you know, they, they've done a piece recently around the endoscopy capsule and kind of the, the, the high end of clinical innovation and how that can support and supported that from a, um, a process of a kind of evidence assessment. Um, and how it should be used. So I think 
in each organization it's probably viewed differently in every person it's kind of having that banner up front around people processes and tech and what's the difficult problem you're trying to solve puts you in good stead for everything that then follows great thank you for that asthma uh jazz what are your thoughts? Uh, so I think it's a really good question. And I think it's one that we all need to think about. What, why are we making the investment that we need to make in our organisations? And and to your to your point, Asma, about those problems. And I think it's more about it's about how do we start to join together as a, you know as ICSs in terms of helping our patients get the right service at the right place at the right time. And you can only start to do that once you've got that joined up systems and the information at the right place at the right time for those clinicians. Um, and until we start to do, you know, from a digital perspective, it's one of our enabling strategies. We can't become outstanding unless we've got access to real time, good quality information that helps us from our, helps some of our challenges going forward. You know, our demographic challenge, our obesity challenge, working with population health, etc. You know, so Worcestershire, we don't have a digital, uh, an EPR at the moment. We've got lots of different systems, but really over the next sort of 18 months, we'll be putting that in place. And that will be the heart of our sort of foundation then to start building on having those conversations from a clinical pathway perspective across the system so how do we think what's what's the right services for the patient and how do we start to bring the patient's voice into some of this um and some of that you know looking at the benefits and focusing on the outcomes and as we go on our improvement journey it's for me how do, how do we start to sort of capitalize on digital in terms of helping us standardize our processes that i think both of you mentioned asma and, and penny around reducing variation because of that that's the key enabler from a digital perspective and helping us reduce that waste so that actually clinical staff are doing the things that add value, which is focusing on the patient and being by the patient when, when doing that. Um, so, so that's what it means to us really as an organisation. Brilliant. Thanks for that, everyone. Penny, does that answer your question? Um, it's it's amazing to see that we, we all um, go into a different angle, but we all uh, end up saying exactly the same thing. And, and I really like that the person-centered approach that and the patient-centered approach and the fact that it's not just about implementing digital technologies, evaluating, it's realizing its benefits, it's learning from it and it's including the patients and the end users to ensure that we improve the outcomes of our population. So everything that everyone said really resonates with me. Perfect. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next question now then. So Martin, please could you talk us through your question? So my question is, how do we know that what we're doing is good, essentially? Because we, the reason I ask it is because everyone who's operating IT in their trust or their thing has got a captive audience. If we were in competition, how do we know that our customers or our users would come to us and not go to the competition? That's a good question. Okay, so Penny, would you be able to start us off? Yes, thank you, Martin. This is an extremely good question. And um, I would start, start by saying that um, we work, we've work. we got some frameworks, some national frameworks to guide us. First of all, what, what good looks like gives us a framework to think about, to think about how do we build our, our leadership, our workforce, our infrastructures. Um, but going beyond that, um, it's about the inclusion of, of the end users for me and and getting their views of whether the the action plan that we have put as organizations and as ICSs, we ensure that not only our end users are part of that 
um, creation of, of, of a program, of a strategy or implementation, but we also get feedback from, from end users and from all stakeholders to ensure that what we are saying we are going to deliver is actually what we are delivering. And, and obviously all these big programs that um, we are running at the moment, they've got their, their deliver, the program deliverables, but it's important that we look at the individuals, we, look, we speak to our clinicians, we speak to our patients, and we engage with communities. And if we are saying that the purpose of, of digital change is to improve the health of our vulnerable communities, how do we go out there and actually um, talk to their communities, engage with them and, and get their feedback? I hope that answers your question. That was great. Martin, is um, it? <laughs> It, it does. I mean, we've got so what good looks like is a really interesting framework, but what good looks like um, doesn't answer that question of if I was going to buy something from Next Online or if I was going to buy something from ASOS online, why is it that I have both windows open at the same time and the one that frustrates me the most isn't the one that gets my business? Yeah. So how do we make sure that when somebody comes off from their from their clinical work because they've got an IT problem, how do we make sure that we prevent that IT problem in the first place or we get them back to what they're trying to do as quickly as possible? So it's it's that fundamental thing because you can you can become complacent. Before I joined where I am at the moment, um, I basically went around and fixed IT departments for a living. And I could still be doing that because there are loads that need fixing. And, and one of the, so the questions we've got is, uh, do you do you work in a system where the IT department could be better? And if so, how do you know? Asma's got a hand up. Yeah, Asma, I'm going to go to you now. It's such a great question because how often do we sit back and say, are we doing a good job? You know, we can't, we kind of look at transformation programs completing our different elements. And for me, there's almost like a macro and a micro element. So ultimately, patients are at the core of everything that we do in the NHS. So improved outcomes. And then you step further in the kind of the patient health outcomes and also their experience and everything else that kind of is wrapped up in that. And the next stage up is the clinicians and our workforce, wider workforce. You know, are we making their life easier in being able to support the service users and provide the best innovative care to improve the health outcomes of the population and then you kind of layer up to the wider supportive functions within each trust like your IT team your BI you know or all the other teams able to carry out the supportive function in the most um, efficient way and it comes back to kind of that efficiency um, and innovation angle doesn't it of are we doing the best that we can and I think you know the benchmark of are we doing a god good job especially in the tech space has to be are we further ahead than we were yesterday or the day before or the month before or the year before you know iterative evolve uh, evolution because we've found certainly in in recent projects i've been involved in we develop some tech and before we've even finished that six month program it's out of date because new information's come to light or there's newer technology available so that benchmark has to be almost ever you know working in an agile way and for me, it is just about are we doing better than we were doing yesterday, the month before, the year before, and constantly on that journey and almost embedding that learning culture at every level within our organisations. Great. Brilliant points there, Asma. Thank you. Jazz, can I come to you next? Oh, I thought this was a really interesting question because it, it, there's so many dimensions to it. So, you know, in terms of are we talking about our teams in digital? 
and how do they feel and how do they think that you know how would they perceive the job that, and the service that they provide then you've got the customer's angle in terms of well, okay have they got the tools they need to do the job efficiently safely and product you know um, and to the highest quality and, and as productively as they can and then our patients you know who are receiving our services who we're trying to throw so much digital innovation at have they got those skills and the tools etc that they need so I think it's about how do you make sure that each of those three quadrants have got the voice that they need? So how do we hear their feedback? Um, and I think it's about building those relationships with those stakeholders within your own teams, with the patients and the staff. And sometimes it's just about meeting the basic needs. You know, is their PC logging on quickly first time? And sometimes we start to build these fantastic innovative tools without dealing with the the basic fundamentals of is the Wi-Fi working? Is the other PCs in the right place? Have we given our staff the right tools to provide the care that they need to in the location that they're seeing that patient? Um, and I think digital has a really hard job at the moment in terms of meeting so many priorities. You know, you've got national priorities, local priorities, uh, organisational priorities, ICS priorities. What you know, have, and, and we talked earlier about funding. Um, you know, have we got the money? How do we how do we provide those requirements against an ever-shrinking budget? Um, so for me, it's it's about being realistic and honest with yourselves as a service and saying, actually, we want to. Where are we striving towards, and how do we know that we've got there? Well, actually, those three quadrants is about what do they want in terms of. I think Asma said it about outcomes and how would they know that that actually you've given them the tools they need to do the job that they've been asked to do every day. Um, and I just think, you know, I mean, I, when I worked in digital, it's it's blooming thankless in some cases. It's a hard gig. I, I say it's a hard, that's why I've moved out of it. It's a really hard gig. Um, and the organisation doesn't realise how important digital is until something goes down and you're only as good as your last failure. And I think it's being realistic about, you know, how fundamental it, it digital is to an organisation, especially as we move forwards. Brilliant. Thank you for that, everyone. Is there anything else that anyone would like to add before we move on? I think they were all great answers and I can now figure it out how I go to the next stage. Good. We'll leave you to mull that over. Um, so, Jazz, I'm going to come over to you now for your question. So can you just talk us through why you've asked this question? OK, so we're, we're just about to start work. Well, we've started working on our, on our EPR implementation um, and we're just putting together. Our, we've got a CCIO and a CNIO and they're putting their groups of staff together to help the, the, the programme going forwards. And, you know, when you look at those groups there, you know, the nursing groups are very female white. The clinical groups are very white male um, and you go, well, actually, how do we start to get the voices from other professionals, from other you know, groups of staff, you know, the female voice, the male voice into the nursing group, the female voice into the clinical groups? Um, how do you start to get that diversity also from a patient's perspective? Because, you know, you know, engaging with our PPF, as I do now from an improvement perspective, again, it's shaped from a very, you know, demographic perspective, professional backgrounds, etc. And I think until we get those voices, the right voices being heard, and sometimes it's the same voices that they're always the loudest that, that we hear, how do we start to, to encourage um, the other voices to be heard? I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, Penny, can you kick us off on, on the answering of that question? Yes, that, that's a great um, question. And um, I'm currently finishing a book on um, rebels and how do we um, actually make sure that our 
teams are have got those, as you say, diverse voices and the mix of thoughts. Um, because otherwise, if we are all in a similar point of view uh, and we think similarly, we are going to be so biased, we're not going to see anything outside um, our own view. And that's often detrimental, as, as the book suggests, with various examples. So I, I'm personally quite lucky to work in a very... Um, diverse organizations and we we encourage people um to to mix up in forums to to come forward as as champions of a lot of digital programs and it's a lot of work to go down to all levels of the organization but this is what it takes because often as you say and um, jazz the same people come forward if you put an advert out um or or a call for for somebody for for a leadership position the same people come out so we need to be able to to address and and create those relationships as you said before with all levels of the organization go and speak to people, what their drivers are, what their motivations are, and how do they see themselves wanting to develop and mix the skills. Because we know that a team only works well if the if each one brings something different. And, and we know that every person has got um, some pearls there and some character strengths that complement other people in the team. So when I build my teams, for example, I go through different kinds of, um, you know, those um, assessments, as we call them, of, of character strengths and, and of people's personalities. And I make sure that, for example, I color my team and they are all in different colors because everybody has something to bring. But again, diversity of people and thoughts is really important. And what I've seen during the pandemic, which I think is carrying on, is that mixing of roles and more mobility between roles, um, which I think is really, really positive. And to bring it back to reality in digital transformation, again, we need representatives from, from those communities which, which are potentially well, uh, less well represented. And that's another work that um, I'm doing with our public health director is actually um, reaching out to those communities and getting them involved in our programmes. Perfect. Thank you for that, Penny. Asma, can I come to you next? What's your response to the question? Um, I think it's a it's a great question and I really like kind of Jazz's point around how do we make sure that, that voices are heard. Um, and Penny's point around if you've got kind of similarity in, all, in the people that are involved, it becomes an echo chamber, more of the same. You're not getting innovation or a different lens on that. And I think there's something about how we can encourage a more diverse cohort. So um, I imagine for a lot of roles, there's preconceived notions of who would fit into that role. Um, you know, your chief exec tends to be a white middle class male who's, you know, who's worked at a director for, for a certain period of time, et cetera. And, in the, and, and similarly in the tech space, and there's something about how we mix up. So you're right, COVID has allowed people to be deployed into different roles and show that you can bring a different lens. And we've all got the transferable skills to be able to kind of take on board new areas of work and bring innovation. I think there's something big around kind of, you know, the grassroots individuals, the service users and those that are delivering the service have got a lot of the solutions that we need for innovation. So, you know, your um, healthcare assistant who's doing something in a cumbersome way and knows the process should be changed, we need to be speaking to those individuals to work through how we can kind of um, change the way we do things. It's easy for, for all of us as senior leaders in the NHS to sit in our ivory towers and come up with amazing solutions to 
problems that we've never transacted in practice so go and talk to the right people to get them involved and I really like this kind of recent movement about trying to get more women into the tech space and encouraging kind of a younger cohort of people graduates into this this tech space because there's a massive diversity. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 and there's such a difference in the thinking of myself versus some of the fresh graduates that we're getting come through where you think, wow, really refreshing to hear kind of that thought process. And I think there needs to be kind of a change in mindset around you need X number of years at this level and you need to do all of these things and do all of these courses to be kind of a viable voice in this space. Thank you for that so much. Thank you. Martin? Thanks, Katia. I think there's some great points there. Um, and as the middle-class white bloke on the call, Asma. Um, we love I, you, Martin. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. That's very kind. Um, I do appreciate that 80% of the reason I'm the CIO is because I'm a middle-class white bloke and 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that was the job. And so we have, um, I have deliberately encouraged diversity in my IT team. 50% of my um, staff are women so we had a big post there women in tech we encourage that but the other thing that we encourage the reason we want diversity isn't because well the reason we want diversity is because we want diversity of thinking people from different backgrounds people who have grown up in different ways people who have been who have not been through university but still have and have no experience of that and people who have no experience of that all of those different experiences really help you create a service that will impact that will impact the diversity of your population and Samuel and West Birmingham has a diverse population 70% of the children in Samwell speak English as a second language okay so that's fairly huge and outside of London is one of the most diverse but it's not just about that what you what you've got to think about is these people are all patients and potentially patients. So we want to make sure that our patient body is reflected by our staff body. So what we do is we actively encourage people to come on work experience because people don't know what IT is about. They think it's about sitting in front of a computer. So we've got three school kids at the moment doing their one week work experience with us and we have a regular flow through. The other thing we do is we, we train people ourselves. So if people haven't got the right qualifications will happily bring them in to do one job but train them into the next job so that so we're actually getting getting a different flow of people who would traditionally come into IT and we are seeing the benefits and we're seeing the benefits because we get that opportunity for people not to become what we are but to retain their individuality and the way we do it you do it for a new system is you map a flow just this is how do you do it map the flows walk through the flows and interact with all the people who are involved in that part of the flow and therefore everyone involved in that flow will have an input and you've not predetermined who's going to have that information if you get the people who've got the loudest voices you'll end up doing what you've always done but digitally and there's no point digitizing a terrible process which was one of asthma's three p's the people the process and the technology that's what we do Brilliant. Jazz, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's so helpful, isn't it, really, in terms yeah. of that, that diverse thinking and just, and I liked what Asma said about asking the people who do the work and not throwing solutions at it, um, but asking them what the problems are, etc. So thank you for your, your feedback on that. Asma, you've got your hand up there. Would you like to yeah. add anything? 
Yeah, I just wanted to add, it's really great to hear the work Gardner Martin and Martin's organisation are doing in terms of that um, positive action to increase the diversity. And with, I think we need more of that across the board, positive action to help um, support increase the diversity, both from kind of heritage, background and um, social de deprivation factors across the board. Absolutely. Perfect. Thanks. Anyone got anything else to add just before we move on? Great. OK, so we're going to go over to Asma now for our last question on the topic today. So Asma, would you like to take it away for me? Um, so my question was, um, how do we ensure that the drive towards digitalisation doesn't inadvertently cause health inequalities or access issues? Um, and it comes from a very personal space. So I um, I was quite ill um, about a month and a half ago with a severe chest infection, which my doctor now thinks was COVID. Um, and I really have to contact a doctor. So trying to kind of get access to a doctor and the triaging system and the lack of ability to get through and navigating left me feeling quite frustrated and quite emotive about it because um, when you're ill and you need a doctor, that's a point where you're kind of at your most vulnerable and to be able to have access to an individual, whether directly on the phone or, or kind of a face to face is really important. And it got me thinking about I'm an educated professional who works with the NHS and understands the system and can navigate. And I can also quantify that no individual in that process is at fault because everyone's trying to be helpful. But the system's broken with the I mean, I was stuck in a loop between urgent care centre and GP. And it made me think about you know, kind of elderly patients who won't have access to the online apps to try and book in for appointments or um, to those living in deprived situations so who don't have unlimited minutes to be able to sit on the phone for an hour for your GP surgery. And it really worries me that on this drive to kind of digitalise the technology and go, 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 which overarching is the right thing to do, building efficiencies, we don't kind of allow these chasms and our most vulnerable parts of the communities it further and further into the cracks um, and what positive action we can take to support that. Great question. Thank you for that, Asma. So Penny, am I okay to come to you first? Sure. Such an important question. And, and for me, digital transformation should not exist if it increases the gap um, and the digital gap and, and creates more access problems. And one of the challenges is exactly that. How do we, how do we ensure um, that whilst we are transforming, we're doing that safely and equitably. So to give you some examples, um, for us, the first thing we want to do is understanding who the populations that we are treating are, okay? So we need to know who is coming to A&E four and five times um, per month, okay? Who are the people who do not come to their clinic appointments? Do not immediately assume that these people have sorted out their problems or they just forgot their appointment. It's these little details that if we dwell into those, we are going to realise that there are specific communities who are struggling to get through. In your example as well, whether it's a telephone call or using an app or even getting to their appointment or even communicating with the clinicians once they get there. And to be honest, do we have a good system of interpreters? Can we do we always ensure that what we are actually saying to patients in their appointments, they understand fully? Do we follow that up after the clinic appointments? There's so many things that we need to actually improve in that patient pathway. Um, and again, what we are trying to do in our organizations, taking the big subjects of elective surgery care, for example, 
with a big waiting list, how do we ensure that the people who really need that surgery come in first and not arbitrarily taking the person at the end of the list who may not need the surgery as much um, and, and making other people late who may be more vulnerable and their jobs and their families depend on that surgery. So how do we bring the population health element into it? And you mentioned data, um, asthma before, which is which are really important. We need to know who we are treating, what their needs are, who the populations are, and build that data um, set to be able to apply population health management and use the opportunity of every clinic appointment or every encounter to ensure that patients have got a means to access care, they understood what we told them about treatment. We make, for example, um, smoking cessation appointments, we ensure they attend the vaccinations and all that lifestyle uh, also management. How do we do that for, for people who are particularly vulnerable? So I hope that gives you a broad answer to your question. Yeah, and I really like that. I think that health inequalities lens running through everything that we're doing really makes an impact. And I'm aware that UHCW have a waiting list tool. So I was part of a demo yes. a while ago around how to kind of ensure that your most vulnerable patients are the ones that are being seen and every contact counts. Indeed, yes. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Penny. Uh, Martin, can I come to you now? Yeah, um, I totally see the digital inequalities. The last two and a half years have shown us go to use video conferencing, being able to do digital bookings of appointments. And then there's a whole section of the population that don't have that access. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, one of the things we can do is we can, like we lend people wheelchairs if we're looking after them in their home and our trust looks after 50 percent of people of our patient activity is outside of the buildings so they are looking after them so we could lend technology while we're still people are still being treated we 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 lend our medical devices we lend our wheelchairs so why not lend out a router and a tablet and then what you've got is the people who can't use those systems so the next thing you have to look at is well, these people who are still in our care are being looked after and being visited by either their family or by some of our professionals or someone from the social social workers or whatever that is. And so what we then do is we give them the technology so that they can operate on the patient's behalf. And we've got to improve our own technology so that you can book an appointment and you can't book an appointment or and there's enough people to actually see. So there's something about how do we automate that or how do we the technology in so that if you can't get an appointment you can't speak to someone but you could actually speak to somebody because we're not geographically limited so if you do those two things you'll still end up with a cohort of people who don't have access and what you've got to work on is that the first the first two in the first two lines of work free up the capacity so that people who want traditional access have got more likely a chance of getting that traditional access so technology will never will never flatten flatten it from because technology costs money and technology you know there are there are people out there and um, who just can't get the hang of technology i mean it's not it's nothing to do with age or anything like that there are just that it's across the population so i think there's a there's about Give them some technology, give technology to the people who already support them and use technology to get the people who can get treated properly with technology 
out of the way so that we can help the people who are um, technology disadvantaged. Perfect. Thank you for that, Martin. Uh, Jazz, can we come to you now? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a great question, Asma. So I, I, I've been thinking and reflecting going, do we actually provide patient-centred care? So when we're putting together our pathways with systems, how often do we put the patient at the centre of that conversation in terms of what we're about to deliver and what we're about to do? Because everything we're doing is about delivering better care for that patient. But actually, if we don't have the patient's voice at the table or in those conversations, then actually we're going to get something wrong and inevitably we are because we're all experiencing the same issues that you experienced in it when you weren't so when you were feeling poorly last last month so you know we talk about you know the governance frameworks around quality impact assessments and quality impact assessments but do we really think of ourselves or put ourselves in the shoes of those patients or, or bring them into the conversations to help them develop those conversations and I think there's a bit of us that means that, that we're scared to do that you know, we're scared to ask the patient the feedback because we know inevitably our services could be better, but it's okay to say, look, we're not doing as well as we are and we want to do X, Y and Z and we want to be better in this. So I think there's a bit about um, being braver, being more curious about the services that we're providing and how do we engage, you know, the third sector, those community services with engaging with our patients and the different populations and the hard to reach groups, you know, the homeless who access services, the revolving door services, you know, the, those areas of deprivation that we all have in our communities, which are really going to, who are really going to be struggling now if, if we're, you know, virtual services, you know, they might not have money for mobile data, etc. So how, how are they going to be accessing services? So I think there's a bit, there has to be a rethink about and a reset around how we in digital think about the services we're about to put in. And not just about it. Well, it's easy for us. It's easy for our clinicians. And how do we turn that language and that conversation around in terms of what's the right thing for our patients? Brilliant. Asma, does that answer your question? Yeah, and I really like how Jasmine finished that. What's the right thing for our patients? Because early on, you know, we were talking about the delivery of maternity services and and that's one of the areas where you you just want someone physically there to help support and they're looking at the environment and it is what's the right thing for the patient and then work backwards from that. Brilliant. Okay, so that is all of the questions asked and answered. Are there any final thoughts on any of the questions that have been asked today? It's been a really useful therapy session. (laughs) Absolutely. It's a safe space. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Well, Asma, um, would you like to speak about the event you're working on just quickly before we conclude? Thank you. Um, So, APNA NHS is an NHS um, South Asian Leaders Network that's kind of got its first inaugural conference in September. It's a two-day conference, 9th and 10th of September, and the focus will be around the ED&I agenda. Um, So we've got Amanda Pritchard will be addressing the audience. We've got some great guest speakers, some workshops around that EDI agenda, and we would love if you're trust were able to support um, a table or kind of sponsor one of the awards to come along and join us. Brilliant. Thank you, Asma. Okay, well, that takes us to the end of today's podcast. Uh, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all again for for providing your insights into the topic. I know I have learned a lot today. I'm sure the listeners will feel the same.